This is The Soul's Intent with author, psychologist, and spiritual teacher, Ernie Vecchio. The Soul's Intent is a show that boldly claims that it can help reveal where you are on the spiritual path. Learn how there is a physical place of love, truth, and freedom. Listen, and in an instant, learn that moving to such a place is actually a choice. This is The Soul's Intent, and now here's your host, Ernie Vecchio. From a a spiritual perspective, the ego is that aspect of the self that considers its distinction from others through its identifications. In short, the ego is our sense of I and me that tends to approach life through our thinking. Spirituality, our true state of existence, is discovered through identification with the soul. From the soul's perspective, we can choose to live our day-to-day life with the consciousness of observation or true witness. Psychologically, we define ego as pride about oneself. Thoughts such as my intellect, my life, my wealth, my husband, and my children all need to be a specific way to acquire happiness. Where the soul reveals how life truly is, the ego tells us how life should or could be. Mm. So that is our topic tonight. <laughs> and now, I, I what think is it, mm-hmm. you think what? You think what? Um, I don't know what I was just gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well I was just gonna say that that came that came from uh, that you know, I won't should on you if you won't should on me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, when I was when I was writing that because that's that really is uh is what the ego is all about, is all the shoulds and ought to be you know, ought to be and could be. And uh yeah, so uh this idea of observer has changed and you know this just in the brief time that we've been working together, my uh expansion of the soul's role in all of this uh, has just been magnified in the past year uh, because when I first wrote those words, I was talking about the soul's intent as it relates to um, the unconscious and as it relates to the material that I was sifting through with all of my trauma patients. But now as I, as I begin to understand that, uh, that this thing that we call the soul, which starts out as a burst of light uh, as soon as the sperm contacts the egg. Uh, and, we, and, and, and we'll talk about this later on, I'm sure. But uh, that burst of light has a pre-programmed kind of uh, sense of what it is we need to do to uh, get through this existence. And, and that pre-programming is, uh, is pretty profound and very intelligent. And, it, and so it begins very early. You know, I used to think that the soul's intent uh, was activated once we underwent adversity in the external world. But the truth of the matter is that that we really begin communicating with the soul just as soon as just as soon as we uh, are created, very very quickly, uh, like within five to six weeks of our conception, the mm-hmm. heart and the spinal cord and the brain are are, are forming and. And we're not conscious, but yet we have a physical sensation of a of a connection to the Creator and a and a, and a sensation to the connection to the Source. And so, I've gone deeper with that in my own sense of it now. And so, if I thought it was intelligent before, I, I'm, that intelligence has been magnified in the past year of my sense of it. Yeah. 
Wow. Wow. So, so what you're describing, how you're describing that. So it's, it's kind of like from the very beginning from that, that, that burst of light and that meeting of the sperm and the egg, our soul is, is guiding us. Would, would you say it that yeah. way? Well, I don't think it's guiding us at that point, but I think that the intelligence of the guidance system that is made up of the of the soul, the ego, the spirit, and the heart, I think the the system is being formed, and its its communication uh, is symbiotic, and that it is working towards uh, wholeness and towards completion. So, in other words, at that mm-hmm. point, we're all one. We're 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 all one. We're whole. We don't get disintegrated and, and really kind of separated from the source until we enter this existence. And then uh, and, and, and really even after we do that, Irma, we have almost two years in this existence before language that we're even still related to it. So it's still there. Uh, what lay people would call this is innocence mm-hmm. because, we're, we haven't, because we haven't been contaminated yet by what it means to be in the world. And so, mm-hmm. so, so it's a three. It's 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 almost three years of exposure, if you will, to an intelligence that so far exceeds our brain, and uh, that uh, that we never forget it. I mean, it never goes out of our awareness. Uh, I mean, it's always there. And um, mm-hmm. except for the ego, except for the ego getting in the way of it, that's the only thing that happens. But uh, so, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think that the intelligence is guiding us at that point when we're still in the womb, but I think that the intelligence is forming because the system, the guidance system, the formation of, of those organs of perception, which would be the heart and the ego and, uh, and all that is taking shape at that point. The ego, yeah. of course, is not because we haven't come out. So really it's just at that point it's the heart and the soul, really the human spirit doesn't really come into existence until we're born and the ego doesn't come into existence so so two pieces of that guidance system is being formed uh and and two of the most important pieces i might add because one is kind of like the satellite that the gps is connecting to which is the soul and then the heart is the the uh, the organ of perception that is directly connected to that satellite so it's that kind of a that kind of a picture or image, if you can see that in your head. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just I'm I was just sitting here when I first asked you the question. I asked you. I was sitting here and being in that observer place. I observed my question of. So, are you saying from the minute that that light burst and the the sperm and the egg meet that the soul is guiding us? Just that question. It would would imply that there's a separation, but at that point there really is no separation. Well, do you know what no, I, do not, you know what no, I'm no. saying? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a little yeah. bit of an echo. I don't know if the echo is. I don't know if the echo is on my end or your end. There's a little bit of an echo um, on blog talk. Um, oh, it, it. But yeah, there's, it could be on my end. There, yeah. There's there's no separation at that point. Yeah, at that point. Uh, you know, we, we've got, a, you know, nine full months. I mean, uh, really, I guess, closer to eight months, three weeks or whatever, because, because the brain, the spinal cord, and the heart is formed uh, in that first five to six weeks, like after conception. So, and, and so those, 
organs of perception are are there and they're kind of connected to synchronized, if you will, to the heart of the creator, in this case the mother. Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah. So so the yeah. ego and human spirit follows after birth. They're not really formed until we arrive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, and you're, so, and, so you and about, you're saying it's at two it's around two years old that we start to kind of leave that innocence and kind of take on well, it, a it, it, a feeling of separation. Yeah. Well, as soon as we take on language, which is uh, you know most of the experts say eighteen to twenty four months, as soon as we start to speak and take on language and begin to construct sentences and begin to identify with I and me uh, and begin mm-hmm. to identify that we are separate, separate from the mother, separate from everybody, really. As soon as we begin to feel the separation of I and me as being different from everybody else and different from the mother, that's when the ego forms. And so, yeah, so that, so that's when we, so it's, it's not in our aware. I, I think children, you know, and, and you've said this, that you had this as a child. I know I had it. As, I think all children have it. We have a connection to it because we're coming out of the shoot really just curi- just really curious about everything. And that mm-hmm. curiosity and all those questions that we ask, you know, why is the sky blue? Why, you know, where, where does the moon go when the faces change? And, uh, you know, where does the sun go when it's on a cloudy day? I mean, these are the kind of questions that young children ask. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think that curiosity kind of gets snuffed out as we start adapting. Uh, and dependent upon, you know, how much adaptation we have to make uh, is how quickly that happens. So some people that are kind of insulated and protected from life and don't really have a lot of adversity in the beginning, they may keep that curiosity longer uh, and don't kick into a, and don't kick into a survival mode quite as early. But for those people who have a have a rough beginning, then they're 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 kicking into a survival mode very quickly and they're adapting very quickly. So so their sense of that intelligence and their sense of that that curiosity of asking why and wanting to know uh, kind of gets kind of gets put on hold or gets snuffed out. It 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 really kind of turns to fear. I mean that's what curiosity turns mm-hmm. turns in turns into. We we stop yeah. asking questions and we just start you know, trying to go along with the masses to fit in, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and a lot of our conditioning, and I'm, I'm not um, being critical or judgmental as I'm saying this. I, I think I'm being more of an observer <laughs> of life and the human condition that we are kind of conditioned in the school system and in religion if you're going to a church and there is one person that you know the congregation is listening to and in the school system it's a a group of children that are listening to one person so we're kind of conditioned to go into that place of um not not asking questions being more of um being more of in a place of being conditioned with um, whatever the teacher is giving out or whatever the um, pastor of the church yeah, is think, giving yeah. out. or Yeah, yeah. I think we tolerate that. Uh, and I, I think the word you're looking for is submission. <laughs> I think we oh, submit. Yeah, that's it. That's the word. Yep. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. I think I think we submit early on because we don't know what else to do, and that submission changes, uh, or at least should change, as we hit junior high age. Uh, junior mm-hmm. high school is when the hormones is when the hormones kick in, emotions start becoming overwhelming, and um, and so what we think and feel about life. Uh, we're more adamant about maybe not going with the flow and maybe being, you know, gone, gone against the reigning authority, whatever it may be at the time. And that's, that's really what adolescence is supposed to be is, uh, is because teenagers are trying to establish a power base or trying to establish some sense of competence and effectiveness and adequacy in the world. And so they're, they're, they're going to question and they're going to, uh, you know, kind of go against, some of what they're being told and some of what they're being taught. And that's, that's quite developmentally, you know, kind of appropriate. But again, dependent upon how much freedom you have to do that and how much confidence you have in that experience determines how mature you become or how, or if you um, repress or suppress your emotions or your thinking, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the kid in the back of the room that's afraid to raise his hand, you know, uh, yeah, and there's a bunch, of, and there's a bunch of kids out there like that that are afraid to ask questions or afraid to go against the grain. They know something's off. They can't put their finger on what it is. It's going on inside of them, but they're asking an outside source for the answer. You see, and, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, when you're asking yeah. when you're asking an outside source for what's going on inside you, you're going to get a confusing answer. In most cases. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and I yeah, guess so, I just so, wonder so what. Mhm. I guess I just, well, I just wonder what. <laughs> Go ahead, Ernie. There's a there's a, no there's a delay tonight. I hate that when that happens. Yeah, um, I know. No, no, I was I was just going to say that it's a process. It's a process of um, of going inside oneself and contemplating and reflecting and then coming back out and kind of experimenting with the world and then going back in again. So it's an in and out kind of process. And so when we come out. That's when we're coming out with questions. That's when we're coming out with our confusion, whatever it may be. So, yeah, and mm-hmm. it's a process. It doesn't yeah. happen overnight. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I wonder how uh, a child's life would change or children's life would change if there was more flexibility of um, of speaking up, of of being allowed to be more curious. It's um, yeah, and and I I don't I I did not grow up in systems like that, and I'm not sure exactly how um, you know, like grade school is today. But I just wonder, you know, what is going on in those little minds, and if they're was even just a, a short period in in the school day to just allow whatever questions within the child's mind to to come out and to be heard. I think that would be. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does happen in middle school. I think they. I think they do try to. Um, they do try to encourage individualization and uniqueness in children. Uh, uh, the the only problem that I think that's happened over the years is we've we've put so much emphasis on positive reinforcement that we reinforce everything, and and some things some things are just developmental stages that we go through. They shouldn't all be you know reinforced as special unique kinds of things, but yet we 
we're really high on positive reinforcement, and we do so much reinforcement that we don't um, uh, we that that children are not, are not prepared when things don't go the way they want it to go. In other words, when something is not positive, they don't know what to do with it. And mm-hmm. so life life is made up of both positive and negative. It can't all be, you know, just reinforcement, reinforcement all the time, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, and I think actually, about, I think, yeah. I, I I was getting ready to say that I think I think of myself uh, when I was an athlete uh, that I learned more from my losses than I ever did from my from my wins, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that 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 that's true in life that you learn more. From when things don't go the way you expect them to go, then if everything goes as planned, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, from you know, raising three sons, I think um, honestly, I think children know when adults aren't coming from this kind of like uh, truthful place, because really, if you're everything is positive and everything is great and rewarded. I think there's something within a child that knows that that's just not true. And actually I think it could kind of create a sense of insecurity in a child. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that one of the things that marks the, the entrance to adolescence uh, and, and and I'm thinking maybe just, just as you start high school, like maybe the ninth grade, ninth, 10th grade, you begin to start seeing a lot of hypocrisy and noticing hypocrisy in the world. And if there's one thing that teenagers are great at pointing out is the incongruence and in what they experience and what they're being told. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and when there's some, and when there's something incongruent, they, they register that. And uh, I know in the, many of the teenagers that I work with, uh, many of them don't want to grow up. When you, when you look at the average age kids are leaving home today, it's like 27 and it, and it, which kind of says, you know, and, and of course, our generation, people were leaving home at 16 and 18 years of age, and those were those were rites of passage for us. Those rites of passage are now kind of blurry. I don't think that they're as clear as they used to be. And so, young people look around at the adults in their lives, and they go, "Well, you guys are not doing such a good job at being an adult. I don't think I want to be an adult. What I'm seeing in you is that." Life is stressful. Life is hard. Life is depressing. Life is fearful, uh, and so I want to stay a child as long as I can. And that's what a lot of kids are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, just kind of, they're just they're just kind of refusing to grow up because they know as soon as they cross that threshold of into adulthood that it's coming with all of these negative things. Um, that's very, very true in our culture right now. When you look at young people in terms of what they expect and what they think about the future and what they think about the adults in their lives, because that's where they get their their original conditioning from. So, depending upon yeah. whether or not that was that was a good or bad experience, then that determines whether or not they're anxious about becoming an adult. Yeah, it's almost like they're saying, "Why bother? <laughs> mm-hmm. Why?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly is, what they're under- saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So on the on the topic of our show tonight. So how would you um, describe, define the observer versus ego, and and why is that important for us to understand? Well, I think the 
I've got a couple of thoughts on that, but you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind when you're asking that question is that the, the observer, if you could imagine that the left side of the brain uh, thinks, in a, thinks in a straight line and it literally is, and we live in a left brain culture, so it's linear in its perception of things. It's also two-dimensional in its perspective of things. That we, we spend a great deal of time in our earlier life in that left hemisphere, in a left hemisphere culture. We don't get a lot of practice at using the right side of the brain that much. And, uh, and the observer, if it, had a, if it was going to reside somewhere, it resides predominantly in the right side because it sees the whole picture. It sees, mm-hmm. um, it, it sees everything. And so, so the, the importance of that is, is huge because um, context is, is what is lacking. Uh, if you don't have context, then you're, then you're going to be confused. And so, mm-hmm. so the, the 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 first answer, the first part to your to the to the to the question is that to connect with the observer, to connect with the witness that is inside of you, that is there in a neutral position, that views your life without judgment, mm-hmm. is actually coming, is actually coming from the dimension of love and truth and freedom. In other words, it, mm-hmm. that's where it lives, that's where it resides, that's where it gets its energy. Uh, so it sees the whole of things in a different way, and um, and being able to step back and see all of something is invaluable to be able to see yeah. because it's because it's context. Right. And the ego's and the and the ego's job is to take us away from that. Of course, it's not doing it on purpose. It just it's just not able to see until it's kind of present with itself. It's not able to see the whole picture, and. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but I think that uh, that being able to to realize that you are that that we've gone into every orifice in the body, we've dissected the brain, we cannot find the observer, but yet there is one in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that there is somebody inside the box, so to speak, and um, mm-hmm. and so you can identify with that and live your life based upon that observer's perspective or you can look at life through the lens of the ego and the two differences uh, are two-dimensional and three-dimensional so so the the right side of the brain sees three-dimensional time and sees three-dimensional space it sees context where the ego mm-hmm. only sees life like a flat screen yeah yeah and, and but we need we need the ego to function and mm-hmm. I, I think I just heard you say that the ego can't see the whole picture until it becomes present. Did I understand you correctly? Right. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's not going to. And it's not going to do that. I think when we're younger, we have sound bites of uh, of, uh, of presence, but we're not going to be able to hang on to it or stay with it when we're younger because we just have too many distractions. It, it isn't until we've, we've developed a little bit and matured a little bit that we begin to recognize that, that presence is really the gift of being human. That's one of the, the wonderful gifts that we have as people. It's the capacity mm-hmm. to be present with our, with our lives and our circumstances. So I think mm-hmm. young people have a sense of it in sound bites, but they don't know how to hang on to it. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is and understandable. I, and I don't even know... And, and I don't even know that it's developmentally possible when you're when you're a young person because you're just so busy trying to follow the path that you've cut or the path that's been cut for you. 
and mm-hmm. so so it so presence isn't as important when we're younger uh, there's other things that, that have our attention like like I said before power uh, being adequate uh, being successful being pretty being smart <laughs> being uh, being liked by other people fitting in these are the things that we're focused on when we're younger uh, yeah it isn't, yeah. Until we, and, it isn't until we get a little yeah. until we get a little older that we stop worrying about some of that stuff. Yeah. Right, right. And also, as a child, the, the distractions part of the distractions is learning how to function in in the in the state of ego because a, a big part of what you're doing with say a toddler, you're you're teaching them to identify objects you're 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 creating identification external identification so they have to go through that process to be able to function and to know what things are but i think it's it's a matter of um adults that have gotten stuck in that place because to me when i think of observer i think of being rather than than doing Mm-hmm. But but kind of like a um, doing from a place of being, which I think is possible. I don't know if that makes any oh, sense yes. to you or any of our listeners, but yes. I love that place. I love the place of being, doing while I'm being, because there's such a, um, I don't know, a richness and a fullness in that, and it doesn't feel... Um, it feels expansive. It feels free. Um, and I said, totally well, we had possible, that, but yeah. We had that conversation one night. I think it was off the air, though. I think it was just one of our kind of Ernie Irma conversations where where the soul, I said that the soul was attempting to dream us awake. Well, that's what you're describing. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the, the best kind of. The best kind of dream you can have is the one you're having while you're awake, and so yeah. Uh, and I think that's and, and I think that's Henry Henry Thoreau or whatever who said that, but uh, Henry David Thoreau. But but yeah, I think that that uh, young people don't think they have time to dream, <laughs> or they have other mm-hmm. concerns besides their dreams, or they may not, or they may not think that their dreams are possible, and so so that's that's part of what's happening there. Mm-hmm. That, uh, it, it, it takes time to get some confidence in that. Yeah, and I think yeah. I think the way I think the way I think the way Carl Jung broke this down is is that we all start out in life kind of introverted or, or kind of extroverted. We have a little bit of both, but mm-hmm. we lean toward one way one way or the other. So so for for a child who's introverted, then you want to do everything in your power to get them to come out because they're having difficulty with self expression. They're they're inside themselves probably more than they should be. And for and for an extrovert, you want to teach them how to go inside, how to reflect, how to contemplate, because they're so outside in the world that they're that they're they're too externally controlled. So, so we all have a little bit of that introverted, extroverted stuff going on as we're developing. And so, so but what we may not have is the compensation there to offset it. And that's mm-hmm. what the environment and and teachers and and instructors and parents should be able to do is to try to strike a balance. If you have an introverted child, then you want to try to cultivate their extroversion. And if they're, if they're extroverted, you want to cultivate their introversion. So both ways you are both, both ways you're giving station to an internal life. Mm -hmm. And that's the key Mm -hmm. here. 
yeah. you know, to have an yeah. internal life as early as possible is the key here. Because if you have that internal life early, you won't lose it later on. If you don't have that internal life, then you will lose it for a while and, and, and may or may not get it back. You see. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, can definitely be seen in, in adults. That's can definitely yes. be seen in adults. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now who is that? Is that Eli or Gracie? <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to open the door. Hope you cut that out of our recording. When you, <laughs> yeah, must, must be a deer, a deer on the property. I have no idea. That was that was both of them. One barks oh, and the okay. other one barks and then and then runs out the door. <laughs> So as as I'm looking at this paragraph that I read and looking at the title of the show, The Observer versus Ego, and you know how you're kind of describing both, I just really and I know we've talked about this on other shows, but I think it's really important to kind of every once in a while just go over again that the ego isn't necessarily a bad thing, something we want to get rid of. And I know you're so good at kind of putting the ego in an alignment with the soul, the heart, the spirit. Could you kind of go over that again for the listeners? I just think it's a major big deal, especially for the spiritual community to, um, more of a complete picture of what the ego actually is yeah yeah the ego well the the soul in the in the context of the show we're talking tonight the soul is the orchestrator of your life in other words it it tends to uh wants you it wants you to see what it is that you need to see so you can get here and so it's going to orchestrate your internal and external life to do that the ego is kind of like a hard drive on the computer. It literally is just uh, downloading and storing all the experiences, positive and negative experiences. But, um, mm-hmm. but the ego tends to focus on the negative experiences. And so because that's where all the adaptation is, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to do a lot of adapting to positive stuff, but you have to adapt to adversity. So, so the human ego is an adaptive uh, kind of uh, kind of organ of perception, and it's very, very good at navigating the outside world. Uh, without the ego, we would not go to work. We would not brush our teeth. We would not take a shower. We would not do any of the functional things that, um, uh, that cause us to fit in the world and be in the world. So the ego adapts. It's the compensations that the ego throws in that may be dated or may be, uh, may be um, out, of, uh, out of sync with with reality because since the ego is storing a lot of thoughts and ideas and perceptions with feelings, which then evolve to emotions uh, and they go kind of unchecked and they're not really looked at or examined, then they are lived as if they are the truth. And so Mm -hmm. the ego has no, the ego has no clue what the truth is. as it's developing, it's what it figures out is what fits in the outside world and what fits to survive in the jungle, so to speak. But it doesn't know anything else but that. And so, so that distinction is is really important to get that the that the human ego is adapting, and it is responding to the prodding 
of the human spirit, which is your feeling reaction to the present moment. And so that relationship of provocation, the motivator, so the ego wouldn't do anything without that motivation. So, so the human spirit, if, it is, if it's been harmed, and it has in the beginning because it's cut away from the creator, but if it's harmed even worse once it arrives, once it comes into this existence, then it's told that it isn't very smart or that, it's, or that it doesn't fit in or that uh, there's something wrong with it. And we, and we typically use guilt and shame uh, to parent the ego. If, if the ego internalizes that as truth, then you have to at some point go back and undo that programming. Uh, and um, so you can see that the adapting is uh, the good and bad and ugly of this experience. Mm-hmm. But, the ego tends to, but the ego tends to focus on the ugly uh, and, uh, uh, and because that's what it internalizes as its own deformity, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if you're using guilt. If you're using guilt and shame, if the culture is using guilt and shame, and I should also throw in fear to kind of cement. So fear, fear is kind of the emotion that cements uh, guilt and shame. Uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 of course, guilt is that I'm, I, I can't make a right decision. I do everything wrong, uh, you know, that I just keep making mistakes after mistakes. Well, that turns into self-blame and self-punishment. Uh, and fear, and fear drives that. Uh, mm-hmm. Shame is a little bit different because shame is uh, I'm not worthy, I'm not love worthy, uh, um, and so it's more of a self worth issue. And fear also drives that as well. So, so fear so those, is the. Is the um, yeah, I, I was just going to say fear is the precursor emotion uh, or feeling that that then pairs with a thought which is tied to guilt or shame that then becomes the emotion of guilt and shame. And uh, mm-hmm. once those pairings have happened, they become internalized, stored away as if they are true. Mm-hmm. And we may go a lifetime, uh, you know, trying to undo that, but we all get exposed to it at some point. There's no and, way to escape that, it. Yeah, and that would be coming from the adaptive ego, yeah. The ego yeah. that yeah. Okay. So here's a question. <laughs> Does the ego have intelligence? It has it has intelligence of uh the law of the jungle intelligence. It has hmm. it okay. has, it, it, it's accumulating life smarts, it's accumulating street smarts, uh as it is evolving. Uh it it doesn't have so a lot of emotional it. intelligence. We yes, need it we kind need of it as a to tool to function and make our navigate our way through the jungle. <laughs> it, it's yeah, helpful yeah. with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's developing street smart and it's developing life smarts. Uh, if it's evolving and growing at all, uh, not everybody gets street smarts and life smarts, uh, even with adversity. But but if it's if it's evolving as it is it's supposed to be, then it's growing with these experiences. And the ego tends to operate on the hindsight's twenty twenty rule uh, because mm-hmm. it doesn't have a and it doesn't have a lot of insight and it doesn't have any foresight. Uh, hmm. So, so it, and you can see that 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 would be a two dimensional perspective. How do I survive this existence hmm. out here, this flat plane world that I'm in? How do I survive? How do I uh, how do I adapt? How do I get along? How do I fit in? 
These are the things that the ego is focused on. It doesn't evolve, the ego, until it gets present. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's the function of the human spirit. I mean, the soul wants presence, of course, because the soul is, is always in that observer position of presence. Uh, the ego has no idea what presence is at this point uh, until we kind of grow into it. And uh, that's why I say we have sound bites of it. Uh, mm-hmm. But we in don't. Fact, we don't understand. Yeah. In fact, what? Well, I was going to say. In fact, could we even be um, in a place of observer unless we were present? Would Would that even be possible? No, no, no. Presence and observing are kind of are kind of the same animal. Presence yeah, would be yeah. the. Uh, yeah, pre- presence would be the condition uh, that would allow observation to happen. So, yes. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. So the, the two are kind of married to one another, yes. Yeah, and so, is an observation so connected to soul? Soul intelligence? Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. Yeah, because okay, it is the yeah. soul that's really, it's, it's really the soul that's doing the observing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the soul that really kind of senses. Uh, if you if you consider that, that, and again, we have a lot of different ways to define soul, and I think it gets kind of confusing. But I, I try to keep these things simple and say that the soul is what animates your body. That without the, in other words, it's your life force, and we know that that life force has a. You can take a physical picture of it, and if you have the right instrument, you can take a picture of your of your body and you have an energy field that's around you that's shaped like an apple, that is your life force. It is self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. It's never off, never gone, never away. Well, that life force has intelligence. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so in that, in, in that regard, it is, is, it is constantly kind of orchestrating our lives inside and out, really, for us to see what it is we need to see to, for it to arrive for it to arrive because mm-hmm. yeah. you think you think you're already you think you're already here simply because you've been born. <laughs> and like I've said many times on many shows I've done is that you don't really get here until you choose to get here. Uh and uh and and you do have a choice in that arrival. It doesn't just happen hmm. as birth. In fact, and in fact, you know, uh, Christians and religious people call it uh born again. Well, the reality is, is that the ego uh, probably dies and is born again at least four times in a lifetime. So death and rebirth should be happening at least four times. It may mm-hmm. happen more than four, but a minimum of four times. And why four times? Well, the first time is adolescence. Second time is young adult. Third time is midlife. Fourth time is old age. So, so those, mm-hmm. those are developmental stages of death and rebirth, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. so you want to be more. So, my point on that is, you want to be more than just born again. You want to be born again and again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, See? yeah, yeah. And look what and, and look what and look what that does to the born again concept that religious people use. I mean, born uh-huh. again sounds like it's a one it sounds like it's a one time deal, and then once you once you're born again, and you have this uh, incredible epiphany and awakening, that that's it. You're done. You've arrived. But in actuality, you're stuck again <laughs> uh, as soon as you think you're finished arriving because it's developmental. I mean, it's, you're not going to fully get here until you work through 
all of the adaptation that no longer fits the present day moment. All those adaptations and all those strategies, defense mechanisms, personality traits, all those things that you might have taken on to survive your life may not fit the present. And that's what you have to look at. And what what if somebody got stuck there? What if somebody got stuck there? Well, which, what, yeah, that's what personality that's what personality disorder is. Personality disorder uh-huh. is a pervasive uh, it's a pervasive pattern of thought and emotion that cannot see beyond those patterns and beyond those emotions. And so that's what personality mm-hmm. disorder is in a in a in a clinical sense. That's what it is. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. They're stu- their their emotional growth has been stunted which means their spiritual growth has been stunted and their psychological growth has been stunted. So all of those, the emotional, the spiritual, the psychological, has all kind of been stunted. It's frozen in time. Mm-hmm. And the hmm. only thing that unfreezes, that unfreezes anything is heat. And heat is suffering. And that's what the human spirit provides. The human spirit provides the heat. It provides the angst. Or, or you and that, use that, the word, I that, think, friction. Would you say friction? Same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and now I'm saying, and now I'm saying even more that it's a self-corrective activity. In other words, the human spirit's angst is a self-corrective measure. It is happening to self-correct. It's the original self-correction, the very, very first one, was wait a minute, I just got cut away from the source. Mm-hmm. That's the first self-correction. Well, that, that is the, the little tiny snowball uh, that, that then grows into a larger snowball the more life you live and the more you accumulate suffering. So the original source wound, which is getting cut away from self, is what all other wounds kind of stick to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so it, now you can see how the layers get made. You know, we, I, I've said before that the ego is like an onion of layers and layers and layers of traits and beliefs and, and, and emotions and thoughts that, that really just don't fit the present moment. So you can see that those layers get formed very early. And hmm. nothing cuts through those layers better than trauma. Trauma, and I'm talking tragedy kind of trauma, really cuts through those layers very quickly. And that's what I learned in working with my clients is, is that um, if I cut your legs off, Trust me, all the things you thought were important before, all the things that you worried about before, you know, just give me back my leg. The rest of that stuff mm-hmm. I took for granted, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, so that's what happens with severe trauma. It cuts through those layers very quickly. So my argument has always been that we shouldn't have to wait for a tree to fall on us for us to wake up, um, that we could voluntarily walk through our fears one at a time, and, and this is kind of an existential philosophy, walk through our fears uh, as we move out of, that, out of that prison that we originally constructed as a cage of self-protection. We move those bars out of the way and we walk across this moat of fear, build a bridge to the truth and the truth, mm-hmm. of course. And that's – but it's a process, as you can see. It's a process. That we all kind of hmm. have to make a choice to, to to do, and so, so yeah. If you could just sit down anytime you're having a any kind of issue in life, I don't care what it is, just stop and ask yourself what you're afraid of, because that's the precursor emotion for all other emotions. Mm-hmm. 
So if you if you could just put your finger on what you're afraid of and stop being afraid of it, everything changes. Yeah. And, that, and and yeah. And one way to do that is to I I don't know exactly the process of how someone would make soul contact, but the soul has no fear. The soul mm-hmm. has no fear. So Correct. Yeah. So huh. well the uh, well remember what you're trying to do is train the ego to trust its own reality. And this is this is what psychosis would be. A psychotic person doesn't have the capacity or has lost faith in their capacity to do good reality testing and actually test you know, do do a do a reality test and then actually trust what they experience and trust what they see. And uh so Reality testing is really, or, or lack of it, is really what causes psych, uh, psychosis. Um, people that have psychotic problems are stuck in, the, in their own reality versus reality itself. Hmm. And so it's... Rea- so, huh. so doing, yeah, so, so, so doing, doing reality testing is key. What am I afraid of is a very important question. And remember, we said in previous shows a natural state of the human ego is anxiety. And, and, and really the natural state of anxiousness is am I enough? Am I okay? Am I secure? Am I doing this right? Am I correct? Uh, am I going the right direction? This is the, this is the natural state of the ego. Mm-hmm. But something you just said about reality you said it in a way that kind of insinuated that there's one reality well no there's i know that sounds like a weird question but i have a reason for asking it no if you look at science they're saying there's multiple dimensions but that's not the kind of reality i'm talking about Um, Mm -hmm. remember that Truth, truth in this in this conversation isn't information; it's a place. Right. So the, the 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 one reality that you're looking for is integrity. Like if I stand on the floor, and Ooh, whole, I like that. You, yeah. Then I know that the that the floor has integrity. In other words, what it's doing, what it's supposed to do. Uh, and so what you're seeking in your reality testing is: does my sensation of what is true does it stand up does it hold up to to truth and uh and you can only figure that out if you test it like i said to you once before if you think there's if you're a little boy and you think there's a boogeyman in the closet and i walk you over to the closet and i turn on the light to show you that there's nobody there what you should do is go to bed and say okay turn the light off i'm fine but if you're a little boy and you haven't got that that confidence yet you're going to say okay i believe you but leave the light on anyway so in other words mm-hmm. the reality test didn't work the reality test hmm. didn't work. Hmm. and so that that's it so it's, it's got to stand the test of validity of, of integrity and that's what we're all this is what the soul was really pushing us to do is to have um have self you know to to stop doing self-deception because if we're deceiving ourselves, then we don't have a sense of our own integrity. That really is the concept of the inner child. I mean, the inner child formed in, in, because it is, it is kind of a, the repressed aspect of ourselves that is put away 
and compartmentalized, you, you have the authentic child and then you have the not okay child. Well, that not okay child is where the work is. Hmm. And the spontaneous, authentic child is what wants to be free and, what, and wants to get here. Well, it's not going to trust if it didn't have a lot of experience with, with, uh, with, with trust with people in its life or with things in its life. So we, get, we learn to not trust by getting violated again and again and again. And if we make up that it's us, that, that, it's, that we're the problem, then we're, we're not realizing that the people that were the circumstances that failed us are the problem, not us, you see. But we huh. tend to think that it's us. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah, and so, so when I say it's got to stand, it's got to stand up, it's got to, you have to be able to do a reality test and check yourself. And then in that moment, and, that, and, and as you can imagine, that, that requires a moment of presence, a moment of reflection, a moment of stepping back and observing the whole of something to see where do I stop and start and where does the situation stop and start and how much of it's me and how much of it's them. This is the kind of stuff you have to do. And then you learn, of course, in doing that, that you have no control over them. <laughs> you only have control <laughs> yeah. You only have control huh. over over yourself. Yeah, you only have control over yourself. And and so, I mean, I, I look at my own demons. For example, I told you that shame is my demon, and, and I spent a lifetime trying to heal that in myself. But I used to think it was shame on me or shame on you. It was always shame on me. I was mm-hmm. the one that messed up. I was the one that did something wrong until I finally stopped doing that. <laughs> you know, I was told my whole life that, that, for example, that I had trouble with authority, which was true. I did. But I also figured out that the authority had trouble with me as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I probably I, and shouldn't I got, be laughing, but <laughs> no. But I'm uh-huh. saying it's that kind of inner, it's that kind of inner dialogue that you. So somewhere between those two extremes, you see, Irma lies the truth. Yeah. Some, yeah. Somewhere between them, between us and them, lies lies the truth. And so being able to see the truth. Uh, you've got to be in that observer position to do it. And, and as you can imagine, it takes a certain amount of maturity, a certain amount of time on the planet. You know, I, I typically say around midlife is when we're probably more adept at doing that than any other time because we've already spent so much time doing everything the ego said we needed to do <laughs> and what the collective ego said we needed to do and that something's missing. And then we discover, oh, my gosh, it's me I'm missing I'm so busy adapting and fitting in and acquiring and obtaining and succeeding that I lost myself along the way. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so it, it's, a, it's around midlife that we begin to get a sense of that. Yeah. 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 Which, yeah, which is, I, I guess that's kind of the process and the development yeah. of, of human beings at, at this point in yeah. time in 2016. But you, but, do you think we'll ever you evolve can see, to developing differently? I think, think that's people, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say this. This is a bold thing to say, but I'm going to say this. I think that if people uh, that are hearing these shows and understand what it is that I'm saying, that, that if you can grasp the idea that your suffering is a self-corrective measure, that your adversity was, uh, uh, was handed to you to self-correct, not correct it, but correct mm-hmm. how you hand, how you handle it, how you internalize it. Uh, that's the self-correction. 
that you can change your life in, mm-hmm. in really in incredible ways. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think that, that I, I think that is the evolution. And and of course the the first aid cream, the salve, the the uh, the healing ointment for this is self love. So that's and so and self love in the context of the work I do is suffering with oneself. That is compassion. Yeah. You yeah. suffer with oneself instead of for oneself because if you suffer yeah. more than you're a victim. Right, right. Yeah, and if you didn't have the self love when you do come um up against adversity or or suffering, probably one and the same if you didn't have self-love, then yeah, you would become a victim and you would become powerless and um, probably just stop, <laughs> just stop evolving because you would be, yeah. yeah. Huh. That's yeah. very, very interesting. So yeah, I, I, um, I'm not sure exactly what words I would use, but I have, I guess I would use the the word faith that, that life itself is self-correcting through, through human beings. Life itself is self-correcting there. Is, there is evolving. Well, going you can on. see, you can see, well, you can just see what's happening in the culture. If you don't think that the collapsing of institutions and corporations and governments is not a self-correcting mechanism. That's exactly what it is. So mm-hmm. if it's happening in a mac, if it's yeah. happening in a macrocosm kind of way, uh, you know this, you know it, that we're we are shifting to a place in the culture of integrity. And hmm. for us to get there as as human beings, a bunch of things have to collapse before we're going to get there. So that's that really mm-hmm. is the reset button. So, so we do have to reset. So, yeah, I mean, so if it's, if it's happening in a in a collective sense that a bunch of things need to be reset for us to start again, then it also makes perfect sense that it's happening inside of us as well. That we have to reset. Yeah. We have to reset to start again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes total sense to me. So, you know, when we see things collapsing and and um, these uh, systems of what we thought were security collapsing around us, it may seem like, you know, the, the world is full of chaos and crisis, and, but it could be, not could be, I believe it is, leading us towards a different way of being human. Well, it's a yeah. pendulum. It's a pendulum of of chaos to order. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we 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 yeah, we've we've gone uh, through a pretty ordered structure in 250 years of order uh, in our country, mm-hmm. uh, and and now we're moving into a chaotic time, and we have been for a while. And so mm-hmm. the order come back. Order will come back, but not until chaos is finished. You see, that's it's. Uh, the reset, the reset has to happen, but but you don't have to be afraid of it if you have internal controls and you have an internal connection to your own world, your own universe. Then, then you're then you're going to be fine no matter what happens. Mm-hmm, if, the, if, yeah. if the ego adapted, if the ego adapted before, it'll adapt again. You see, but yeah, now yeah. if you're if you're if you're present with that adaptive function, then it's going to be easier because you're not going to have the same fears and worries. So you can see the benefit of maturity. 
If you've got yeah. if you've got a mature if you've got a mature present tense ego, you can you can adapt to anything. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah, I like your analogy of I, I don't know exactly how how you put it, but having the rope tied to the tree, kind of, and that tree is your yeah. your center and your groundedness. I yeah. I think we just I, I talked about that recently with you, and I think I was feeling I don't know anxiety or maybe not centered or or something, and I said something, and you brought up that analogy. <laughs> And I had realized that I had untied the rope from that tree. Yeah, yeah. Well, and or, that, or, or, I always or keep at least that analogy can, with me. Yeah. Or, or at least the ego, or, or at least the ego told you you untied it. <laughs> you well, know, because it's never really. See, that's just it. So you're as, as long as you're grounded. If you've ever been grounded, uh, and ever been connected to the source, you're not going to cut that. You're going to get distracted hmm. from it, but you're not ever going to cut it. You see, that would be hmm. totally away from it. But uh, so, so, so the, the ego, ego had to hold there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost like jumping out of an airplane with no parachute. You know, the ego would tell you that you forgot to pack your chute. And, uh, <laughs> and when you when you know full well that you did, <laughs> it's like I know I packed it, and I know I did, I did it correctly. You know. But the ego is going to say, "Are you sure? Are you sure you packed it?" And as soon as, and, and all, all it takes is just a little bit of doubt, and then you're going to be like uh, screaming all the way down, you know? Yeah, really. And, and, so, and somebody's just pull the cord, Irma. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> the shoot's going to work. It's going to be fine. Oh my gosh, what a great show! Thank you so much, Ernie. This has been insightful as usual. Thank you for being a part of The Soul's Intent with author, psychologist, and spiritual teacher, Ernie Vecchio. This is the show that can open your mind to things you never thought possible. While problems manifest psycho-spiritually, on a most essential level, there exists an energy component that provides the instructions for these fields to enter awareness. And The Soul's Intent is here to help you learn what these instructions are. Join us each week to learn how there is a physical place of love, truth, and freedom, and how in an instant learn that moving to such a place is actually a choice.